You're listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the internet to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web shapes popular opinion, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com. PR industry vet Peter Himmler goes on the record. The once powerful mainstream, earth-shaking media are not, don't have that kind of power anymore. Um, I mean, it used to be, and I've written about this, you know, a piece on a Sunday night on 60 Minutes that an exclusive investigative story would create legislature, you know, within a week or a hearing would be called as a result of it. And, you know, you see it occasionally, but you don't see it to the degree that it once was. And that's because, it, you know, the consumers are fickle and many of them are getting their news from other sources. And welcome to another episode of On the Record Online. This is the podcast that brings you the story behind the story. We do one-on-one interviews with journalists from the mainstream media, and sometimes we also talk to bloggers and podcasters and newsmakers, and we talk about how technology, new media technology in specific, is changing and threatening to disrupt the mainstream media business and also the PR business. Today we have Peter Himmler. Uh, He is a very interesting guy and has a serious PR agency pedigree um, background. I mean, he has, uh, well, you'll hear in his introduction what he's done. He's a very impressive guy. He also writes a blog. Um, So uh, the interview runs around, how long is it, the interview? The interview runs around 25 minutes, um, and we're going to play it for you in its entirety. Uh, But before we do, um, if you are a first-time listener and you're listening to this because you are downloading it or because you're getting it through some other channel, I want to let you know how you can subscribe to the show. You can uh, pick up the feed by going to www.ontherecordpodcast.com, and uh, you can also obviously listen to other feeds, uh, other shows there as well on the entire, you know, all the other episodes are there as well. The other thing I want to mention is that this is a special episode that's being recorded from Media Relations 2006 in New York. I'm actually here in the press room right now, and we are stacked all day with some interesting people that we're going to be talking to, journalists. We're going to be talking to Harold Burson and Al Golan separately for interviews as well. And uh, it should be an interesting day. Uh, I've got eight shows to do in eight hours, so uh, hopefully I'll be able to um, uh, maintain the quality as we move forward. Uh, But that's all for now. Um, We are going to get on to the interview, but before we do, we are going to hear this. Don't be left behind. Get the latest online PR tools and services from iPressroom. Powerful, easy to use, available on demand. Extend your sphere of influence online with iPressroom, tools for online media centers, virtual private press rooms, RSS news feeds, podcasts, and more at www.ipressroom.com. iPressroom, always on, even when you're off. Peter Himmler is an award-winning public relations industry vet who's the founding principal of Flatiron Communications. Uh, That's a PR media consulting firm in New York. He was uh, most recently Chief Media Officer for Edelman Worldwide. Uh, Before that, he had 11 years at Burson Marsteller as head of the firm's U.S. corporate and strategic media team. Uh, He was also the worldwide spokesperson. 
Uh, before uh, uh, Burson Marsteller, he had six years at Conan Wolf and followed by five years at Hill and Knowlton, where he led the Broadcast Consumer Media Relations Group. And before that, he did entertainment PR for, Richard, for Robert Zaram. Uh, he is the president of the Publicity Club of New York. He is involved with the Center for Communications, MediaBistro.com, uh, Museum of Television and Radio. He also sits on the Communications Committee for the United Way of New York City, on the Board of Advisors for the Communications and Media Studies Program at Tufts, uh, where he is a graduate uh, in poli-sci and French. And last year, PR News named uh, him the 2004 PR Professional uh, Media Relations Executive of the Year, and PR Week awarded the program he led for the World War II Memorial in Washington, D.C., um, as its 2005 Public Sector Campaign of the Year. Uh, and in his spare time, he writes a, a blog that I enjoy very, very much called The Flack. And uh, thank you very much for, for being here. I appreciate thank it. Thank you, Eric. So, I have to abridge that bio somehow. It's a bit uh, wordy. <laughs> you know what, though? It's a very impressive background, and I'm happy to be talking to you. Now, the first thing I want to talk about is, um, you know, you quoted Rodney Dangerfield, the comedian, uh, by saying uh, that the PR industry don't get no respect. And that why has the Sidney Falco image stuck for so long? Well, I think um, when you think about the relationship between the media and PR professionals, they've always been uh, diametrically opposed to some degree. Many, many, um, many journalists really value what PR professionals bring to their craft. Others feel that they uh, obfuscate or they tend to spin. And so since the media is the channel through which consumers are learning about things, um, mostly, um, that's the image that has stuck about PR people. Um, and, and in fact, there are, and, and what's happened at a lot of firms is that they push down to junior people the process of media relations. And so when you have someone with one or two years or right out of college calling a journalist and not really um, taking the time to understand what that journalist is doing, it really, it, does, it, it doesn't reflect well on the entire industry. So I think that's probably the seed, the seed of it, you know. How do you think um, blogging can help? I mean, do you think that blogging can somehow improve uh, PR's reputation? It's a million dollar question. <laughs> um, I think blogging, uh, one of the tenets of blogging is transparency and, and, um, and uh, uh, first person openness, etc. Um, and I think in that regard it will, and that's what the purpose of, and the hope of my blog is, is to sort of open the curtains a little wider and to talk about, I mean PR is an enigma. My mother still doesn't understand what I do. Um, so if I can talk a little bit about the thinking behind what's in the headlines and what were the PR decisions and the, and the challenges, um, I think yes, it will help people understand what we do and understand that there's integrity in our profession. And I think a lot of people don't believe there is. So long before Lizzie Grubman ever backed into a line of people at the Conscience Point in Southampton, uh, there was a cover of New York Magazine, and it said Power PR Girls, and it was Lizzie Grubman and two mm -hmm. girls with great hair in a booth at some place to be in New York. And at the time, I was working at Rogers and Cowan, and Alan Nerob called us all into the conference room, and he held it up, and he said, this is where you don't want to be. He said, you never want to be where the client wants to be. Do you agree? You know, I've written about Lizzie and people 
who do what she does over the last year or so, and I've talked about it for a number of years now. And I've been very hard on Lizzie, but I, I've come to believe that what she does, people, some people value, and it's a very niche part of what we do, and it's a very small part of what we do, and it's certainly not representative of what the public relations profession is about. And so, look, if you want to throw a party and get some bold-faced names to attend, yeah, Lizzie's great, and there are a couple of other firms that are also very good. But if you want to deal with a crisis, if you want to deal with a new product introduction, if you want to deal with dealing with a legislative issue or um, grassroots constituency building or some of the other tools in the PR person's toolbox, I don't know if I would um, use a firm like hers. So you use this term a lot in your blog, and you've just used it now in the podcast, Boldface Names. Yeah. And obviously that's Campbell Robertson's column in the mm -hmm. New York Times, mm -hmm. um, which really, I mean, in terms of uh, the awareness and, and, uh, and the spotlight and the pecking order of, of gossip columns is nowhere near page six. Right. So why is it that after 25 years, page six is still an institution? It's funny, I, I remember first starting to deal with page six when I got into the business. I won't say when, but about 25 years sounds about right. And, um, and I remember Jim Brady was the editor, and then um, and, uh, Claudia Cohn was the editor, and then uh, Cindy Stivers. I remember the whole list of people that came down through page six, Susan Mulcahy, and then Frank DiGiacomo went on to the New York Observer, and Richard Johnson, who actually has been with the page since 1985. I remember when he was a cub reporter. And by the way, Richard and I still remain uh, friendly. Um, but what's, what's interesting is um, the gossip columns, it's funny, uh, some years ago I was asked by a friend, a guy named Mike Hall, a PR guy, all he did for a living was gossip. He was not hired to plant feature stories, he was not hired for crisis, to advise, to write releases. He was hired by all the major film studios here in New York to plant gossip items. And he said to me, Peter, he said, um, can you tell me who the key, I mean, he, one day I decided to make a list of all the gossip columns for him, and there were like 10 or eight, eight or 10. It was Eugenia Shepherd and Susie and Page Six and Intelligencer and, and Phil Rohr and Tom Poster at the News and, and Army Archer and people like that, and that was it. Well, you couldn't make that list now, especially with the internet and people like Roger Friedman writing for foxnews.com and, and, and um, my, my favorite, Jeanette Walls at MSNBC. She's wonderful, you know. Um, so the gossip has grown up and has is, is all over. Now, to your question about why is page six still relevant, well, I mean, the Post is a big New York City tabloid, and it may not be the, the biggest circulation, and some people may take issue with its politics, but the fact is it's a fun read, and people go to it, and, and the Post, page six, happens to be what I call a catalyzer. It tends to lead to a lot of other um, uh, media coverage and gets picked up all around the world, actually, in London especially. So... Now, you, before we started recording, um, you mentioned a blog post that you wrote about uh, um, your, your, your opinion on the recent extortion scandal involving Jerry Paul Stern abusing the power of the page. And it was quite interesting. Would you share it with well, us Well, it's funny. I, was, um, I knew when I heard, first saw the story trumpeted on the front page of the Daily News and on page two and three of its news hall, you know, um, I knew that ultimately there would be some PR angle in this uh, you know, eventually. So I, I was I was following the story, and, and sure enough, there on World News tonight on Saturday night, there was an interview with Ed Hayes, who was Andy Warhol's lawyer, who's now um, Jared Paul Stern's lawyer, and he was also um, 
the lawyer who represented the mafia cops recently who just got convicted. Anyway, um, Ed Hayes said in the interview, and I think I heard him correctly, that Jared really was trying to sell his services as a publicist to Ron Burkle. And so I said, oh, there's my angle for the flack. Um, I'll just, you know, I mean, this was the old classic defense. This, quote unquote, this was a, just a new business pitch. <laughs> and um, and I thought that was interesting. So I wrote about it. And um, and it's funny because I was trying to find it online. I haven't, I've yet to be able to find the quote, but I did hear it, I promise. <laughs> You know, the interesting thing was the last sentence of the story that ran in the print national edition was that he lives in the Catskills with his wife, Ruth Gutman. And when I looked online for the story that had been filed on the, on the website, that wasn't there. Hmm. The, 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 the last two paragraphs had been replaced with some uh, a discussion of um, Bonnie Fuller and, and mm. the work uh, he had done for her when he was uh, with American Media, or, mm. or perhaps the star, if I remember correctly. Mm. Um, let's talk for a minute about the culture of celebrity. You blogged about Kurt Anderson's Celebrity Death Watch article in New York Magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, do you agree with him that our fixation with celebrities is in the decline? No, because, I mean... With certain celebrities, yes. I mean, certainly Paris Hilton is not in the paper every day, and and maybe when she does play Mother Teresa, she'll get another. I mean, did you see that? That they, she was asked to, by some, you know, Italian filmmaker or or something Turkish filmmaker to play the role of Mother Teresa. But um, I don't think so. Um, if you look at the numbers for Us Magazine or People Magazine or The Star, and and I don't think they're waning. But I so so. People still buy it. They go to the newsstands and they see their celebrity Jennifer on the cover, and or Tom Cruise or Tomcat or whatever, and it still it still sells. So until it stops selling, um, I don't think we can I don't think we can predict the demise of it. Um, I, uh, you know, it comes in cycles. I mean, was Paris Hilton was hot and she's no longer, and and there'll be others. You know, Lindsay Lohan has was was all over, and 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 maybe now that she's teamed with Meryl Streep, maybe her star will rise again. You know. Bill Maher had done a funny shtick about, um, uh, he was talking about the wiretapping incident, and he said, you know, the Americans don't want privacy. I mean, we'll put a, a camera in our shower if it would get us on television. And he, he went on to say that he thought that perhaps the whole idea of blogging was the fact that people want to be noticed, and they want attention, and they want to be celebrities. And, uh, you know, you mentioned that you haven't been able to monetize the blog, only mm-hmm. the client relationships. Yeah. I mean, do you think that that plays into the motivation to blog? You know, I do. Um, it's funny. Uh, I wrote an item recently about how the top PR people in our industry have always been in the background. I mean, if you run into Harold Burson, you wouldn't know him unless you knew him, you know. Um, um, Howard Rubenstein is a, is a different it's a different story because he he represents you know the the Rupert Murdochs and the George Steinbrenners of the world. So he's a little more out there. His name is in the paper quite a bit. But um, I think that the essence of the item was you know PR people are coming out of the closet and they like they like the attention as evidenced by the explosion in the number of PR blogs. I don't know if anyone has done a study, but I'd be curious to know which industry has the most blogs. I mean, granted. There are two or three thousand bloggers at Microsoft, so maybe it's technology and 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 that. But the PR industry really does have, 
I think, an inordinate number of bloggers. And I don't know what that means. Maybe PR people crave the spotlight that their clients once enjoyed. And that was my postulation. <laughs> well, I mean, this is so this is an issue that uh, I'd like to gra- grapple with here in this discussion. I think it was Brandeis who once said, sunlight is the best disinfectant. And Robert Scoble, who blogs for Microsoft, um, also is involved with a, a program called Channel 9, Channel 9 mm-hmm. being the uh, station on any mm-hmm. radio, uh, on any commercial airlines where you can hear the discussion between the cockpit and the radio tower so that people who are afraid of flying might be less afraid mm-hmm. through that transparency. So, I mean, on one hand, we, we hear, uh, you know, um, prestigious uh, PR practitioners like yourself saying that we should stay out of the limelight. We don't want to be where the client should be. But then on the other hand, we find that in order to improve our reputation as an industry, we have to shine the sunlight. So how do you balance the two? Well, you're, you're hitting on a theme that's been fairly recurrent in my blog, and that is there, there is a real dichotomy in the industry right now. I mean, we're caught between our need to command and control the message um, you know, and, and then the, the the also the importance of being transparent and full disclosure, and 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 you know, and so the question is, there are many practitioners that still adhere to the old command and control approach and crisis communications, where they'll advise, they'll create messages, and they'll they'll media train their clients, and 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 they'll deliver those messages, and hope those messages will resonate, and that'll be the end of that. Okay, and then there are folks, mostly coming starting out of Northern California, that are really Bob Scoble and Shell Israel, his 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 co-author, his Naked Conversations, saying that look, there's there are a lot of and Richard Edelman, there there's an incredible value in being open and transparent transparent for companies and it's a new age that we're entering um, so the question so there is a dichotomy right now we're we're at a we're at an epiphany I think not an epiphany but at a, a turning point in our industry where we have to reconcile the two um, when when Scott McClellan gets up there and tries to control the the, 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 the Washington DC uh, you know the press core there um, that's command and control. I mean, would you see Scott ever creating a blog and or ever, you know, no, you don't. But it's very effective. So what's more effective? And, and maybe certain industries are more ripe for blogging and, and being more transparent and certain others aren't. Um, I don't think Bob Scoble would agree. I think he he would say that pretty much every industry should be open. And, and, and yeah, I, I kind of am leaning towards that. On the other hand, you know, clients have not yet bought into it. Companies have not yet bought into that. And until they do, you, if you want to maintain a living, you probably have to work with them on some of the traditional PR um, um, tools that, that we've come accustomed to. So, And that remains largely command and control. Command and control and messaging and, and trying to make sure that your messages resonate in the editorial channel. channel. So let's drill down on some of these issues in specific. Mm-hmm. You mentioned uh, the uh, press secretary for the uh, Bush administration. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dowd, um, on the 8th, uh, was writing about... Um, Maureen Dowd? Yes, mm-hmm. the controversy uh, uh, concerning um, the declassification or leaking of information. And, and what, what really did happen? Was it declassification? Was it a leak? And I want to read for, uh, to you the quote that she used from uh, McClellan. 
It says the president believes the leaking of classified information is a very serious matter, and I think that's why it's important to draw a distinction here. So he's trying to distinguish between the two, and I go on with the quote, declassifying information and providing it to the public when it is in the public interest is one thing, but leaking classified information that could com compromise our national security is something that is very serious, and there's the distinction. Well, what's the difference in this particular case concerning this Scooter Libby uh, um, mm -hmm. uh, document that mm -hmm. recently came to, to, uh, to light? It's funny because the coverage of that incident today in today's New York Times d d described it as declassification. So now that word declassification, which Scott McClellan put forward, it has stuck. So to me, the distinction is semantics. And certain words and certain descriptions have certain connotations. And obviously, to declassify information versus to leak classified information are two different they sound, they may be the same thing, but the way they're perceived by someone who hears them is, is differently, is different. So it's semantics, to answer your question in one word. So now let's go to another issue where the same sort of friction, tension exists in the blogosphere, where some bloggers think that you shouldn't blog news of your own clients um, or your own public speaking engagements, and others think that you, know, you should be able to do that, and it's, become a fairly thorny issue, actually, to, to borrow a term from your blog, uh, a, a characterization from your blog, I should say. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I guess my question is, you know, is it a conflict of interest to wear both the citizen journalist and the PR promoter hat? I, um, you know, it's funny, early on, uh, about a year ago, when I first started blogging, um, Steve Rubel, whom you may know is the micro-persuasion blogger, recently hired by Edelman, um, and one of the most highly trafficked blogs out there in the PR industry, and, and of all blogs, actually, actually wrote about a client on his blog. And, and I sent a note, are you, I, I, I commented on, are you a citizen journalist or are you a PR person? And you're right, there is a conundrum there. There is a tension there. And in talking to people about it, um, a lot of people who are in the know, they said, it's okay once in a while. I mean, look, if you're not making any ad revenue off your blog, at least you can do use it to promote something you're working on. Uh, but but I, I think to do it solely for that would be a, would be wrong. You know, um, in terms of um, whether to promote speaking engagements, etc. I I you know I was coming here to speak at this bulldog conference, and. Um, I asked my friend Constantine, who knows a lot about blogs, I said, well, is it okay if I mention that I'm going to be here? He said, oh, absolutely. So I figured he gave it an okay. I, I feel a little, you know, not guilty about it, but I, you know, you don't want to be self too self-promotional. You want to be more enlightening. And, and so I, I think the jury's out. But I think to write a blog for the express purposes of promoting a client would be disingenuous. Yeah, in, the, in, in newsprint or in... Um in any other mainstream media format, there is a clear boundary between the editorial content and the advertising content. Even on a website, mm -hmm. usually if there's a sidebar with an ad, there's a border, and it, sometimes we'll even say advertisement mm -hmm. and script above it, mm -hmm. above a banner or a tower ad. Do you think that if a PR practitioner is going to be blogging about things of interest and also about clients, that there should be some visual cue to separate one from the other? I think that if you're blogging about a client, you need to clearly denote that it's a client, period. 
Okay, if you're pitching blogs, i.e., um, recently uh, you may have read the whole controversy. Actually, it was a New York Times story about the campaign to promote Walmart's point of view in the blogosphere. And I actually wrote a couple of items on it, and I thought that the agency did a, did a nice job in, in divulging who their client was. They did not send anonymous emails to the blogosphere with information without clearly identifying on whose behalf they were sending it. On the other hand, they cherry-picked the blogosphere to, and, and, and did blog relations with only those like-minded bloggers. So there was a question about whether that was... I raised the question on whether that was nefarious or insidious in some way or disingenuous in some way. Um, if you're going to do, uh, you know, it's clever and it's it's probably strategic, but I, I had more trouble with that than I did with um, with uh, just a general campaign. Given uh, some of the organizations, nonprofits that you're involved mm -hmm. with, and your perspective as a professional doing this for a long time. Mm -hmm. How do you think all this potentially weakens the fourth estate in our democracy? All, I mean, the, the advent of the blogosphere and citizen journalism movement, how does it weaken it? Well, I've written about that too. Um, you know, it's funny. If, I, I, I tell people if the Pentagon Papers were published today, would they have the same impact? Um, as if, you know, that they had when they were published, which became a whole ripple effect and, 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 and caused a lot of action, you know. Um, but there, the, the fragmentation of the media and, and diffusion of the media, and there are so many more um, outlets online and offline that, um, that people derive information and news from, that it's... it's you, you can't help but recognize the fact that the, the once powerful mainstream earth-shaking media are not, don't have that kind of power anymore. Um, I mean, it used to be, and I've written about this, you know, a piece on a Sunday night on 60 Minutes that an exclusive investigative story would create legislature, you know, within a week or a hearing would be called as a result of it. And, you know, you see it occasionally, but you don't see it to the degree that it once was. And that's because, it, you know, the consumers are fickle and many of them are getting their news from other sources and, um, or, or from a range of sources. So, so that's... So that's one thing that has happened in the last 10 years and one byproduct of the blogosphere. You mentioned in your blog uh, an incident with um, uh, Constantine Bastura. And for those of you who don't know Constantine Bastura, um, he is responsible for the Global PR uh, a blog and uh, Global PR Blog Week and maintains a number of different lists that are quite interesting and very useful. Uh, you mentioned that you were talking with uh, with him and uh, about about uh, Buzz Machine and Jeff Jarvis's mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, whole incident with Dell. Right. Um, and for those of you who don't know, I'll just summarize: uh, Jeff Jarvis, uh, who is a, a prolific blogger and a consultant for About.com, uh, was dissatisfied with a Dell computer that he bought and blogged about it, and there was quite an uproar on the blogosphere, and there was really a lot of speculation that ultimately this was going to change the way companies communicate and force them to integrate better communications into customer service and hopefully lead to better customer service. But uh, in this little discussion, you guys were thinking, well, maybe it didn't really have any effect because Dell is still doing great and they never really did respond to it. And maybe we were all just drinking our own Kool-Aid. Um, you know, it's funny. Um, 
what's there's an interesting analogy with uh, that incident, um, and it, it's, it concerns the Intel Pentium chip. And you may remember many some years ago, back when Pentium first became a consumer brand, there was a problem with one of the chip with the, one of the first chips, and that when you did some obscure mathematical calculation on your computer, the chip had a flaw in it, and the calculation didn't come out exactly correct. And what happened was someone it started it started to be talked about in user groups, news groups, okay, uh, Usenet, I guess it was, and then EE Times picked up on it, which was a very influential, you know, technology trade publication, but it's still, Intel ignored it, and then finally, Steve Young, who was a technology reporter at CNN, picked up on the EE Times piece, and then it became a full-blown crisis, and in fact, Intel stock, I think, you know, Drop, you know, thirty percent as a result because they they did not. They said, well, if you can prove to us that there's a flaw on the chip, we'll replace it. Finally, Andy Grove wisely <laughs> decided that okay, no questions asked, we'll replace all the all the Pentium chips that you know whether you prove it or not, and the and the crisis went away. So here you have something similar, the genesis, the evolution of a crisis. It started in the blogosphere. Dell ignored Jeff Jarvis to begin with. They ignored him. Ah, one blogger. What does it mean? But he's an A-list blogger. <laughs> so, and and then other people started writing about it. And then all of a sudden, if you Google Dell, um, there it is, uh, the story. And it became. And then the mainstream media picked up on it. Now, once the mainstream media picks up on it, it becomes a crisis. Now, the question is, Eric. Is it a crisis while it's still in the blogosphere, or does it is it a crisis only when the mainstream media picks up on it? And and it, it but the net net and what we were talking about with Constantine and Rob Key, um, who's the head of Conversion, um, was whether you know what was the what was the stock price? I mean, did, did, was Dell really materially hurt by this? And we we didn't think it was. And I think Jeff actually has talked about that. What the net sort of effect of his personal crusade, online crusade was against Dell. What, what was it? Did he, well, did he characterize I mean, it for us? You know, uh, a, there is a deleterious effect if consumers believe that Dell products are inferior. So there was this awareness that he created that questioned, A, the, the customer service at Dell, but B, you know, the quality of its products. So yeah, I think so. I mean, it, was it measurable in, in a stock price or in lower sales? Um, I don't think the stock price was affected. I don't know about the sales. But clearly the perception by customers and potential customers that Dell isn't that you know, the, the preeminent brand, um, I think that that did resonate, and I don't think that was good. Peter, thanks so much for doing this. I've really enjoyed this discussion. Eric, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the web to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web impacts corporate reputations, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com.